Well, good morning and welcome again one more time to Encounter. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter Church, and we are on part two of this series called Kingdom Come. Uh, The idea of the series leading up to Christmas, Christmas, we're celebrating the birth of a king. But one item or one area that we don't often talk about enough, I don't think, is, is that that king was born bringing along with him a kingdom. And so we're trying to figure out how to live and how to act and how to love within this kind of strange, weird, upside down, kind of backwards in a lot of ways, sort of kingdom that Jesus brought with him. Last week, we kicked it off in part one about the Beatitudes. And today, we're going to talk about why it is that God has us in some of these some of these dark, kind of some of these depressing, sometimes these, these dims, dismal sort of places. And for those of you who've moved here from uh, to Grand Rapids from just about anywhere else in the world, you know that Grand Rapids, West Michigan can be kind of a cloudy, dark, dismal winter, especially in January. But hang on, hope is coming. I promise you that in April, the sun will shine again. I probably can't promise that in April, but you know, someday, maybe one more time, the sun will shine again. But I'm not just talking about like the dark, dismal, like weather, gray skies out there, but some environments or some situations where you're going to inevitably find yourself in, that you're going to ask God why he would have you here. Why is it that God keeps you here? Like, is it his absence? Is it his neglect? Does God not care about you anymore at all? Maybe he did in the first place. Um, I had a job uh, a while back that was one of these dark, dismal kind of places, um, both on the inside and the outside. Uh, the, the business, it was a restaurant, and it was, it was just, it was not taken care of very well at all. It had peaked, it was a steakhouse that peaked around the maybe late 80s, early 90s or so, and when I was there, it definitely wasn't the late 80s and early 90s, and so you'd go in, and be like this kind of like mid-80s decor in the place. It was dark, and it was heavy. It wasn't in like a cool, ironic kind of place downtown. It wasn't that 80s at all. It was just sort of sad and depressing is the kind of reason why nice restaurants keep their lights down low. It's a space that lends itself well to darkness, but it was like that on the inside as well. Um, when I would, uh, I was a server there. I did a half dozen different jobs while I was there. But uh, the, the competitive spirit among people that I was working with, it wasn't a camaraderie. There wasn't cooperation. It wasn't like, oh, I'll run this food to your table if you take bread to my table. None of that. It was very combative. And it was just kind of angry, angsty all the time. And in fact, I remember talking to this one guy who told me, he's like, yeah, you know, I used to be a, used to be a teacher. And uh, that was a, it was a great job for a while, you know, because like, June, July, and August. And I'm like, this probably shouldn't be a teacher. <laughs> um, didn't have that passion for learning and education. Uh, he goes, no, I had to give it up because uh, early mornings were killing me. And I still remember he told me, he goes, um, you see, I have to have a job where I can sleep in till noon every day because, because I like to stay out uh, three, four o'clock in the morning and to get, go to bed earlier than that for me is a non-negotiable. And I'm like, this is not like a great way to live your life. I'm just imagining, right? Um, And there's kind of the the vibe that permeated uh, the whole place. The cook, one of them in the place, he would, uh, he had maybe like a Catholic background or something like that. He called me like a man of the cloth at our, literally our every interaction. And then I was happy how he would introduce me to like new servers that came on. Like, this is dark. He's a man of the cloth after he found out that I was planning on going to seminary one time. And it, you know, it was just the, the way he said it, it was insulting in and of itself. And I didn't really know why, but every time he would put my food uh, in the window, he would say something offensive 
uh, usually about one of the other servers or something like that. And I tell him like, dude, like knock it off. Like it's not okay. And then he would just kind of repeat. I don't know if he was intending on doing that or if it just like exuded out of him naturally. But that's like this, the environment that it was. And at the time, right, I just wondered like, God, like why do you have me in this dark, dismal place? Is it your absence or your neglect that keeps me here? Or is it something else? Now, I want to ask you, I want to kind of universalize this experience because I think everybody here has been, is in currently, or will be at one time in that sort of dark, dismal setting where you're going to start to theologize and start to wonder, God, why is it that you have me here? Is it your absence or your neglect that keeps me here? Or is it something else? else. You're going to start to wonder, why am I at this school where it's under-resourced, it's under-programmed, there's not enough volunteer or teacher support? Why am I here? Why am I living with these housemates who don't pick up after themselves, the dishes all over, the rent always comes in late or partial, there's having people over. God, why? What is it that keeps me here? Is it your absence? Is it that you forgot about me? Is it that you're neglecting of me. God, why do you have me at this place of employment? Maybe it's that competitive spirit or, or, that, or that antagonism that's just wearing on your spirit constantly. God, why do you have me there? If you're any kind of a, not even an overachiever, but just an achiever of any kind, the two words that probably strike fear in your heart more than any are the two words group project. Because you sit down, right? I, I got an amen there. You sit down and, and there's like the people around you in the circle and it's like, this, she doesn't know whether she's gonna like stay in this class or not. This guy leads with, I work till 10 p.m. every night, so getting together isn't an option. And then this person, we don't know because they've missed so much class already. And you're going, this is my, I, I kind of see how this thing is going to work. God, why do you have me in this sort of abysmal, this sort of depressing environment? Is it your absence that keeps me here or is it something else? And today I'm going to go to the Sermon on the Mount and I think he's going to show us, God is going to show you that it is something else. I don't think it's God's absence that keeps you in that dark place. I think it's God's strategy that keeps you in that dark place place. Listen to what I'm talking about. We're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be found in Matthew 5. You can follow along in the Bible underneath the chairs in front of you. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me. Jesus picks it off, picks it up in Matthew 5. Started off in verse 13, where Jesus simply declares now to his followers, his disciples, the people have already made this decision to follow after him. Jesus says, you, you are the salt of of the earth. Now, people have speculated for a lot about what Jesus meant when he called his followers, his disciples. Again, this isn't skeptics. This isn't people wondering. This isn't doubters. This isn't people kind of on the fence. This is people who are in. And a lot of commentators have speculated, what did Jesus mean when he called his followers, all of you, if you believe, if you follow, the salt of the earth? And so people kind of speculated on this one and said, I think maybe there's this there's this preservative quality outside of modern refrigeration. Uh, people would use salt, especially around meat, to keep it good for longer. It also had this antibacterial quality uh, towards it, and it would kill certain kinds of bacteria, which really helped it become an agent of 
preservation, especially around that meat. Um, other people have speculated uh, throughout that maybe it was, uh, maybe it had some kind of healing properties. Uh, like I said, they'd go into water and swim in the sea or in the ocean and it'd kind of come out and they noticed their, their wounds sort of look different. Don't try that at home. Neosporin works infinitely better. I Googled it. It doesn't work that way. But, but people thought like maybe it could help. And in some specific cases, it, it, uh, it sure enough probably did. Um, other people kind of speculated that well, in Michigan, we know, because we talk about it all the time, that uh, salt melts ice, melts snow. And so it's a regular topic of conversation for us today. It's like, did they get salt on the road or not? For them, it, living in the desert, it probably wasn't so much of the case. Although they did know what snow was. They did know what ice was. And listen, whether it's preservative or antibacterial or healing or melting, like these sermons essentially will like write themselves right? Because Jesus, you know, is the salt of the earth. You're melting hard hearts, okay? You got, like, you're healing different properties. You're healing different things. It's antibacterial. There's probably some toxins or something nasty that has to be cleaned up by the presence of Jesus followers in the world. I think that the preservation one, though, is, uh, is probably really helpful because we, honestly, we take it for granted so much. You think about, um, you, you think about, like, all of the, the different values in Western culture that we just sort of accept as normal. But in a lot of other places and a lot of other cultures, it's not normal. It's not accepted. In fact, a lot of the values that we just take for granted are sort of these, these distinctively Christian values that are given to us in the Bible that we've just so ingrained them into our culture. And each generation has preserved them and passed them on and passed them on and passed them on that now we just accept it as normal until that is, they're gone. Until we turn on the news or we, we hear about a story that's happening and, and all of a sudden that value like isn't present anymore and it's like unleashes hell on earth. I'll just give you like a couple of examples. Uh, one of them is the fact that the image of God, we believe as Christians, the image of God is on every single person, regardless of age, race, sexual orientation, or belief status. Everybody is the image of God. And that has, like the, the value that's been passed on from generation to generation has this incredible power to shape and form a culture and society that honestly, I think we just sort of like take it for granted because it's been so well preserved by generations before us. And I pray too, we should pray that we'll preserve it for generations after us. But things like forgiveness, charity, generosity, they just sort of exist all around us with people going above and beyond in their daily work and schools and teaching, sacrificing, not to get ahead, not to get anything at all, but simply because they believe we believe. That's how people ought to act. And whether even you're a Christian or not, that's been preserved and pressed on to you. And we got to press that on and preserve it for the next generation. One of the things that means to be the salt of the earth is a preserving agent. But Jesus probably wasn't talking about any of those. As important that salt was in the ancient world, and it had all of these uses that Jesus would have known about. In fact, the Romans paid their Roman army in many cases by using not Roman currency, but Roman salt. Because in many parts of the ancient world, salt was a more widely recognized store of value than even their own money was. If you go into some places and they wouldn't take Roman currency, but they would take salt because that had an inherent use behind it. And so they paid some of their soldiers with salt, where we get our expression that someone is or isn't worth their 
salt. And Jesus probably knew about all of these uses behind salt. And because of some of the words that he uses in the verses that we're just about to read, he's probably not talking or not at least having in mind any one of those. But he probably has in mind the use of salt that all of us recognize. We like to put it on stuff. Is that salt tastes delicious. And if I could just go on a little rant, because you guys know it, because I said my nacho thing last week, you know I love salt. And some of you followed up with it, so I know you do too. Salt makes everything taste better. I'm going to say, all right. (laughs) I thought I'd have to build my case, but caramel, yeah, that's good. Something sweet. Salted caramel is even better, right? Salt makes everything. I put salt on pizza because I think it just makes everything taste better. Salt, if a little is good, a lot is even better. My wife, my wife will, will, will point out that when I'm like, I, I put so much salt on my, on my scrambled eggs in the morning, and she's like, I can hear you crunch your eggs. <laughs> I did one of those like arm cuff, you know, kind of thing. You get it, okay. That's the sound it makes. And it, it told me that I should probably lay off the salt. I, I'm not a doctor, so I won't get into the numbers. So I started checking into it. You guys, everything has salt in it. Like deli meat is basically just little thin salt slices, which is why it tastes so good. Cheese is just bricks, blocks of, of salt. Even bread and muffins. And you think like, It doesn't have salt in, right? But if you ever try to make bread or muffins without salt, there isn't enough butter in the world that's going to help that go down smooth. (laughs) Salt, even a little, always makes a difference. That is, of course, if it's distinct enough from what it's flavoring and also if it's strategic enough in its location. Listen to what Jesus says Next, where he says in uh, verse 13, continuing on, you're the salt of the earth, but, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything, he says, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Just a quick poll of anybody who keeps this delicious, delicious spice in their cabinet. How many people have had the experience where your salt is gone bad? Like, I haven't, obviously, because I go through it so quickly. But I assume, right, you think, well, if salt loses its saltiness, presumably there could be a time when, after years go by or something, it, it sours? I mean, it's going to clump up, maybe, if moisture gets in there. But it doesn't, it doesn't lose its saltiness. In fact, salt never loses its saltiness at all. What Jesus is almost... Uh, guaranteed to be referring to here is that um, most people, they, didn't, they couldn't afford actual uh, table salt that we have now because uh, it was only available in a few places and it was a, it was a commodity like money to be exchanged. Uh, see the Roman uh, guard uh, comment earlier. Uh, most people, instead of using table salt uh, that could be traded, what they would do is they would actually go to like swamps and marshes uh, or areas low-lying areas near the sea where the tide would come in and out and in and out. And so the seawater, that salt water, would, would saturate uh, porous rocks, barks, sticks, th- things of that nature. And, and then they would gather those things up and then sell those things. And so if you were making a stew or broth or something like that, you would use the porous rock, sticks, bark, that kind of salty flavor stuff, and like mix that all around. 
and the salt would sort of leach off from the bark and the sticks and the porous rocks into whatever it was that you were making it, and then it would flavor it. Right up until the point that there wasn't any more salt to leach off from the bark and the sticks of the porous rocks anymore. And then they'd go and they'd just throw it outside the window, maybe on, on their roof where they also uh, spent some time like sleeping at night or they'd throw it out in front of their home so that they could be elevated a little with enough sticks and barks and rocks on the path. They could start to create kind of this mound and so they wouldn't have to walk through the donkey and camel and people stuff left behind outside of modern sanitation. And it would be useful simply for walking on and trampling on. And so this is Jesus, and he's talking, he's like, no, no, salt doesn't lose its saltiness, but there is a way that the salty thing that most of my audience, Jesus is saying to these poor people, which is essentially over 90% of the population saying, but because you guys all know how the salty things that you use works is that it could lose its salt, its distinctive properties. And I think that fear is no less present and, and common today that in order to be effective, Christians, followers of Jesus, disciples today have to also be distinct from the thing that they are the flavoring. Uh, I used to be a church planter, which means like I just had an idea of church in mind uh, before there was any church existed, which is, creates kind of an identity crisis, but that's what's counseling's for. But I would like talk to people about Jesus and about God and about like having these conversations with as many people as I could. And I kind of used to feel like I was this, this like undercover Jesus secret agent, right? Where eventually they start to find out that I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower. And how are they going to react to that? that? That, you know, this conversation, I've been guiding them in the direction of like, hey, maybe put your hope in Jesus, give that a shot because this thing isn't working out at all. And, you know, I kind of struggled with that for a long time. And part of my journey has been just simply coming to the place where, you know what? I've just realized now in my office, uh, instead of having meetings like Starbucks or Big B or like local coffee shops or offsite neutral locations, it's just like, hey, come on, hang out in my office where I have literally a six foot banner that says, we keep Jesus at the center. It was a misprint. And I'm like, well, it's just kind of like, kind of some bubbles in it, but like, it's fine. Like, I'll just put it up there. So everybody who comes in there knows what I'm about knows with this church what we're about. We keep Jesus at the center. And to be honest with you, I think that God's effectiveness through that has really just simply increased rather than decreased because I think that distinction starts to make all of the difference when people see it. It's unique. It's set apart. It's different. I love what John Piper said about this. He goes, um, the world takes notice when Jesus followers don't put in the center of their universe what everybody else puts in the center of the universe. Like the world takes notice when, when we put Jesus at the center as opposed to putting like financial security at the center or career at the center or even children and family or marriage at the center. When, when Christians don't put those good things at the center, but they in fact orbit around the one good thing of Jesus Christ, like the world starts to notice that like we put our treasure in something completely different than they do. And it's strange and it's unique and it's distinct. And so Piper goes on, he goes, people get ready for people to ask you, hey, I noticed that you don't store up treasure where I store up treasure. Like, where are you putting your treasure if not into the things that I get and that I recognize? And the question then kind of like lingers. Are people asking you 
where are you putting your treasure? Because I noticed it's not where I'm putting mine. Or are they not asking at all? The question is really, are we living that distinct, salt-filled kind of life? Or are we living it in such a way that we remain the Jesus kind of salt in the world, but just outside of what would be strategically advantageous? Uh, salt an inch away from my morning scrambled eggs does me no good. And this is where that strategic piece of God comes in because I just wonder if he has you in that place, not out of his absence, not out of his neglect, but out of his strategy because he knows that you are his salt in the world, but to be effective, you have to be in the center of it and not at the periphery and not on the outside of it. Uh, to demonstrate the point even more clearly, Jesus goes on, he goes in verse 14, now you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, especially at night. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I love the, the images. This is the genius of Jesus. The images that he picks up on. Because the two images, light and salt, they're, they're two images that, of things that are not ends in and of themselves, but they're means to an end. They're useful for something. In the spiritual sense, they're used to pointing at God, the Father. But light, you don't, go, you don't go into your kitchen and turn on the light switch and say, good, now my kitchen has some light, and walk away. Like, that's going to make the dad heart in me just crazy. It's like, shut the lights off when you're not using it. Because light is used for something, not an end to itself. Salt, we don't just keep in the cabinet and be like, good, I'm glad I have some salt on hand. No, no, you got to use it for something. That's what it's meant for. It's a means it isn't an end. I love what C.S. Lewis commented about this principle. He said that I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not because I can look up into the sky and see the sun, but because by its light, I can see everything else. And he's going to get that cheesy uh, pun nature to it, but I believe, right? We, we, look, we, we, can, we believe in the sun has risen, not because we can see him, but because by him we can see everything else more clearly. Salt, light, if it's distinct, if it's strategically located, it always, always, always makes a difference. I'll tell you a story about Paul. In the first century, he was a person that Jesus just got a hold of. And he would go from town to town, village, city to city, and just tell everybody he came into contact with about the difference, the miracles and the message that Jesus gave him. And there's one city in particular that he went to in Philippi, modern day Greece, where we have our book of Philippians written. And he, he went to Philippi and he and his ministry partner Silas were there. And this little girl comes up and we're told she's a slave girl. And she's suffering these symptoms that they could only describe as demonic possession. And she's asking Paul and Silas to be healed. 
And so you know Paul and Silas as, as followers of Jesus and light bearers and salt bringers in the world. They would do something about that. And not being physicians, they put their hands on her and they pray for her. And, the, and it says that the demon left and she was healed. Her health was restored and she was better. And I love this story because it's like a kind of happy story ending. Almost. Because she was a slave girl means that she also had an owner. And the owner was actually profiting, making money on her disability, on her ailment. And when the owner finds out that she's not going to be able to make them money anymore because she's healed, the owner gets upset. And the owner goes around to some of the other owners and some of the other people in the city and starts sharing with them and starts telling them, hey, these guys are starting to, starting to undermine these economic principles that we're all living by. That They're taking away our livelihood by healing and restoring some of the people that we're taking advantage of. We have to do something. And they stir up this crowd around it. And, and the Acts chapter 16, we're, we're told about it. It says, it says in verse 22 that the crowd joined this attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them, imagine this, that they were to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. This is his interpretation of guarding them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and he fastened their, their feet with, with stocks. It's like a board with holes cut in. Sometimes the board was bolted right there into the ground so they, they couldn't move. Sometimes it was left loose so they could move. But if they tried to, they sure wouldn't get very far, not very fast. And they fastened their feet in those stocks after they're beaten. You try to imagine sleeping at night, especially after you got beat. I mean, the kind of like awful scenario of this dark, dismal place that Paul and Silas find themselves. Why? Because he healed and restored a little slave girl and her owner got upset. God, why are you keeping me in this dark, dismal place? Verse 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. And a part of me, I wonder, like, were they just doing that? Like to mess with their captors, their tormentors? Like this is what's really gonna get to them. We'll pray, we'll sing. I don't think so. I don't think so because earlier on, when Jesus says, let your light shine, it just sort of takes for granted that God is shining through you. Let it shine out of you. It's almost like, it's almost like the, the moon up in the, in the sky, a little physics lesson, the moon shining down, but the moon doesn't actually shine down, was it, right? Somebody said, what does it do? It doesn't moon. Nobody say mooning. It's not <laughs> totally different. The moon is just reflecting the sun. Paul, down there in that inner circle, dark, dismal place, is singing and praising God and praying with his ministry partner Silas down there because to tell him to do anything otherwise would be like telling the moon not to reflect the sun at night. 
It's just what comes naturally to him. It's just what happens because the light shines brightest in the dark. It doesn't run away from the dark. The light pierces the darkness. And the salt is no good an inch away from that inner cell. The salt is best operated right there in the middle of it, in the center of those stocks. And the prisoners take notice. And the guard takes notice. Suddenly, verse 26, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaking. At once, the prison doors, they flew open and everyone's chains came loose, including those stocks. The jailer woke up when he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And the jailer knows what happens to jailers that let the captives go on his watch. And he thought, I'll just cut out the middleman. I get how the world works. I don't get how the kingdom of God works clearly. Because when he opens his eyes, sword in hand, the jailer called for lights, pause for emphasis, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he, and he brought them out and he asked them the most important question a person could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? Because salt always makes a difference. A little goes a long way, but salt always makes a difference. It did for Paul and Silas and the prisoners, the jailer and his family who were all baptized after that. It makes a difference. Church, if I'm real with you, I wanna tell you that you are here today, probably not because you drove by and saw a church along Kalamazoo Ave. You're here today, probably not, because you stumbled upon a website. Maybe you did. But you're here today asking the questions that you are, simply because someone that you came across was salt to you, that added that tanginess, that helped heal you when you were broken, that helped disinfect something in your life that did not belong, that helped preserve something in you and keep it alive when you thought all hope was gone and you were dead on the inside. If someone comes to mind when you think that, pass a note along. Just let them know. You were salt to me, you were light to me when I needed it the most. But for you, rest of you today, Jesus is telling you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. And this is his plan to make a difference, to spice the whole world, to heal, to restore, to preserve this whole world for future generations. It's the local church. It's you. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Salt always makes a difference. I just imagine, I just imagine a 10th grade girl taking a test and her phone just keeps ringing and, and, and keeps blowing up because everybody is texting her. Everybody is messaging her and she knows what it's about because someone already said they've got the answers to the test 
In her whole circle, everybody is sharing the answers in real time during the test. This is it. These are the answers. Put this down. You'll get an A. I promise. It worked for everyone. It's going to work for you too. And she doesn't answer. And the thing is, they know she's not looking because her read receipts on the messaging, it shows she's not opening the text. And and they're wondering, why don't you open them? Do you know we've got the answers? Do you know we could get you an A? Do you know the difference that this could make? Don't you understand what's at stake here? It's so easy. Just open the text. And finally, she just blurts out, I can't. It's cheating. And I don't want to. And she doesn't know it then, but salt always makes a difference. And some deal that someone was just about to take and move on, it looked like a good opportunity. It was a lot of money. And someone just sat down and said, pray on it for another week. That's all I'm asking. In a week's time, everything changes. And this radical shift happened. And priorities changed. And this other thing crashed and burned and salt always makes a difference. I had a friend one time who was, who was up for a CFO position. The job was essentially his. And he would be the youngest person in that organization to have ever received such a thing. But the family wasn't into it. And he knew that it'd only be there for a year. And to stay longer wouldn't be fair to his family. And to stay shorter than five years, let's say, wouldn't be fair to the organization. And so he turned it down and nobody gets Why would you turn down a stepping stone, an opportunity like that? And it's because salt always makes a difference. You are the salt of the real estate business. You are the salt of the construction industry. You are the salt of GE Aviation. You are the salt of Spectrum Health. You are the salt of Grand Valley State University, the salt of Calvin College, the salt of Cornerstone University and Kuiper College. You are the salt of the 12th grade. You are, church, the salt of the earth. And you always make a difference. Now, some of you know that my folks, they go here, and most of the time I use that for my advantage to poke fun at my dad when he can't get me back because of his Northern European heritage and his stinginess when it comes to lawnmowers, etc. It's a Dutch joke. But today I just want to brag on him a little bit. Um, what you might not have realized is that in college he studied to be a pastor. God had other plans in mind. He had ended up becoming a probation and parole officer, uh, which as he would tell it is exactly the same, only his congregation is just a little more convicted of their sins. <laughs> but this is the, the strange part of the kingdom, the kingdom come that we're talking about and the saltiness. Um, he got an email from somebody uh, about a decade after he had retired from a 30-year career and the Sorry, it was a Facebook message, and it starts off like this. He goes, my, ran, my name is, uh, and he fills in his name there. And he says, back in 1978, four decades previously or so, I was put on probation for two years. My PO's name, probation officer's name, was Martin Van Eyck. And you know, uh, people who work in law enforcement on any level, it can be a dark, it can be a dismal place. I had to report to an office in downtown Grand Rapids, and I'm not even sure if you're the same Martin or not, but if you are, I'd like to tell you in caps, thank you. 
My life changed after meeting you. You believed in me at a time in my life when I had lost my way. I've thought about you often through the years. I haven't won any Nobel Prizes or anything, but I did stay out of trouble. And I became a good dad and a responsible, contributing citizen. My two sons are active duty U.S. Air Force. I used a lot of what you taught me to raise my boys. And I'm grateful that our paths cross. When I say that God is bringing a strange, backwards, upside-down kind of kingdom, I'm talking about the kind of kingdom where probationers write thank you notes to their POs 40 years after they met. And even though it might take a half a century, salt always makes a difference. I invite you to stand up and let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, the difference that is made is won by your Holy Spirit. God, you're cultivating something inside of each one of us. You're calling us to preserve something, to heal someone, to restore someone. God, you're calling us to bring spice and flavoring into this world. God, you're calling us to be a light that doesn't run away from the darkness, but a light that shines into it and even pierces that darkness. God's salt always makes a difference. Give us patience in the times when we think it doesn't. Give us grace when we feel like giving up. Jesus, it's in your only name that we pray. Amen.